This is a Federal News Network podcast. Hawaii health officials have ordered the Navy to remove fuel from a massive storage bunker after leaks made their way into a nearby aquifer. But the Pentagon announced this week it plans to fight the order in court, partly because officials see the Red Hill bunker as strategically vital to Navy operations in the Pacific. For more on the next steps and why defueling Red Hill isn't so easy, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with Tim Walton, a fellow and military logistics expert at the Hudson Institute. Red Hill is a large fuel storage facility on the island of Oahu. Um, It was built on the eve of World War II. Uh, The Roosevelt administration recognized the vulnerability of some of the above ground storage tanks of fuel that were around Pearl Harbor and commissioned this crash construction program to build 20 steel-lined underground storage tanks encased in concrete. Uh, More than a dozen workers lost their lives building the storage tank, and it's been compared to the Hoover Dam in many ways. Uh, It's a modern engineering marvel. The challenge, though, is that the 80-year-old facility is really reaching the end of its age and has had a number of operator error challenges and leaks over the past couple decades that are now leading to a strong outcry to change operations at Red Hill. Yeah, and it, it sounds like there's a little bit of a dispute between the state of Hawaii and the Navy as to whether this latest incident actually was a leak. But irrespective of that, we know that there have been leaks from this facility in the past, right? That's right. And in 2018, there was an earlier administrative order of consent between the Department of Health, the state of Hawaii, and the Department of the Navy that set out a plan to remediate uh, the situation and, and establish a plan for upgrading the tanks. But this latest uh, spill that was perhaps caused by operator error, but regardless of the cause, it's forced, I think, a deeper conversation on the future of the tanks. Yeah. And earlier this week, the, the Navy announced that it would be appealing the state of Hawaii's order that essentially required it to, as I understand it, drain the entire facility, at least, at least uh, for the time being. They didn't give too much in the way of explanation as to why they feel that they can't drain it and why it's so important. So maybe you can help out a little bit. Tell us tell us why this facility is, is vital for the Navy at the moment. Sure. Um, shutting down Red Hill would be straightforward, but, but the reality is that it's more important than ever. Um, so China has improved its ability to attack bases throughout the Indo-Pacific, and the Pentagon has swapped many of its underground fuel, fuel storage tanks in places like California, Washington State, and other Pacific islands for some lower cost, but more vulnerable above ground tanks. So Red Hill has become one of the most important fuel stores for DOD. And DOD, to some degree, has, let's say, concentrated more of its uh, secure storage capacity there on on Red Hill. So I think uh, looking at perhaps operational plans and contingencies, uh, the Department of Defense wants to be able to retain that hardened underground fuel storage capacity. So I think that's part of the reason why duty has been, uh, let's say, considering contesting the order or wanting to slow that down. The other part, I think, is also that they want to ensure that they do a good job um, moving forward. Right. This latest incident may have been caused by an operator error. And so I think they want to ensure that they're absolutely confident that they can operate the facility safely before they start uh, drawing fuel out of it. What to you does the the state of the Red Hill facility tell you about anything broader in terms of the state of Navy infrastructure in the region and around the world? I mean, this is a lot of things were built in the World War II era and haven't really been been kept up to date. What what, what does it tell us? That's exactly right. Um, I think Red Hill really is emblematic of some of these widespread infrastructure deficiencies. 
So for decades, the Department of Defense has deferred modernization of infrastructure. It's preferred to spend a lot of its modernization funds on platforms such as ships, aircraft, ground vehicles. And now the bill really is coming due as lots of these Cold War or in the case of Red Hill, World War II era storage tanks, um, buildings, piers or runways either age out uh, because they're just too old or they're rendered obsolete by security threats like China being able to target them more effectively. Or, the th or challenges posed by climate change, in particular rising oceans where some of these sea levels are going up and are threatening some of these facilities. So it, it really is a, is a challenge moving forward. And I think it's one that DOD is going to have to pay closer attention to, because I think there's a real disconnect regarding some of the threats and what DOD is investing in. So, for example, in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and in Northern Australia, DOD has talked about instituting more fuel tank capacity there, but what they're building are these vulnerable above ground fuel tanks um, that could only supply a couple of weeks worth of operations and could be subject to attack. So, if, so I think DOD has to develop a new approach that let's say is better aligned with the threat environment and also addresses the environmental or safety concerns that Red Hill has made clear. Just another question on the infrastructure challenges is you pointed out in a recent article that the Navy's current plans don't call for the modernization at Red Hill to be done until the early 2050s, I think. To what extent is that sort of slowness a Navy or DOD-specific problem, or is it more just get back to the fact that the United States, as a general matter, does not seem to be very good at building large infrastructure projects quickly and within a reasonable budget? I, I do think it's really more of the latter. Um, there are some questions, and I think you're absolutely right that the Navy probably should have planned for this more ahead of time. Right? I think that there were some analyses indicating that there need to be more urgency in terms of recapitalization of storage capacity at Red Hill or some other locations on Oahu to have some secure uh, underground stores. But more broadly, I, I think DOD um, and let's say the federal government is now needing to adopt, let's say, some more creative, faster approaches to build the infrastructure that we need, be it in the Indo-Pacific or here at home uh, in other parts of, of the U.S. And when when you're looking out onto a time horizon as late as 2050, it almost begs the question of, are we even going to be using petroleum for operational energy at that point, or will, it, will we have moved on to something else? Maybe that's a little soon for that sort of thing, but when you think about resiliency, are, are non-petroleum fuel sources part of the picture there? Uh, they are. Uh, and let's say over the past like five to 10 years, DOD has really started to emphasize what they call operational energy, which are initiatives to try to uh, reduce demand in various ways, in addition to providing you stores of supply uh, that can meet whatever the military requires. That demand reduction uh, is really important. It's most often, or let's say most effective at the start of programs, whenever you're designing new vehicles, designing, let's say, the footprint for a new installation, and it's difficult to, let's say, put it in at the back end or, or more expensive. So I, I think there are some bright sides, uh, some you know, positive steps in this direction. We see that the Navy's talked about a new destroyer program, and one of the key performance metrics in that is greater endurance, greater range, so that it doesn't require being refueled as often. Uh, the Air Force is also talking about new classes of aircraft that could have greater endurance and, again, wouldn't need as much refueling. That will take time, though. So I think over the next decades, we are absolutely going to need to have priorities. Hudson Institute fellow Tim Walton speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner 
1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.